Okay, here's what we're going to do today. We've been preaching through 1 Corinthians, so turn with me to Matthew 18. Um, actually, that's true. We are, we are going to be in Matthew 18 today, 15 through 20. And the reason for that is, I joke about that, but we actually are working through 1 Corinthians. And the reason, is that better? Thank you. Sorry. All right, the reason we're going to be in Matthew 18 today is because 1 Corinthians 5 last week, um, we sort of cracked open this topic of what we call church discipline. And Matthew 18 is a complementary passage to 1 Corinthians 5, along with Galatians 6, Luke 17, James 5, and some other ones. So the point of me preaching out of Matthew 18 today is to help us understand further the subject that we got into last week in 1 Corinthians 5, and then Eric will finish 1 Corinthians 5 next week, okay? So we're in Matthew 18, 15 through 20 today, and the goal for this morning is to work through that five-verse section and understand the process that Jesus lays out here for us. Um, and I want to establish right away, I'm going to do some groundwork before we even read our passage, okay? So bear with me here for a minute. But I do want to establish right away, and you probably gathered a little bit of this last week, is that the process of the things we're talking about right now are not always fun or pleasant, okay? But they are fruitful and they are necessary, okay? Not always fun, but they are fruitful and they are necessary, okay? These are things that Jesus taught. And also, <clears throat> I want to insert here as well that sometimes we're tempted to read Paul and we think, well, you know, Paul's kind of mean. He writes a lot of hard letters to people. Um, why don't we just do what Jesus said and be nice people all the time? Well, the process that Paul's talking about in 1 Corinthians 5 is actually something that Jesus taught prior to Paul, okay? So we're going to see what Jesus has to say about the same thing that Paul said, and we're going to see that they're not different, all right? So if we're looking at our passage this morning, Matthew 18, 15 through 20, look up above it a couple verses, Okay? There's, there's a reason why the passage we're talking about today comes in between the two passages, both before and after it, all right? Because in the passage before, Jesus is teaching about restoring a wandering sheep to the flock, and in the passage after ours, he's talking about forgiveness and having a spirit, a spirit of willingness to forgive a lot, okay? So we're going to couch our discussion today about dealing with sin in, our, in ourselves, by remembering that Jesus has just taught and will teach again in a moment about forgiveness and restoring people gently, okay? That's the context. So I'm going to read a little bit from 12 and 13 and 21 and 22 to make sure we understand in our, in our minds the context that he's about to say our passage in. So let's read verses 12 and 13. What do you think? This is Jesus talking to his disciples. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. And in 21 and 22, he says, Then Peter came up to him and said, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me, and I forgive him as many as seven times? And Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. A lot of times, right? And the parallel passage in Luke 17.3 to our passage says, Pay attention to yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times in the day and turns to you seven times saying, I repent, you must forgive him. Okay? So we understand there's an attitude of willingness to forgive, eagerness even to forgive, and a desire to see someone who is wandering restored. That's the context in which our passage comes. A couple of quotes for you about the subject, and then we're going to work our way into the passage. Quote from Nine Marks. The lesson from the passages immediately before and after this one is clear. Forgiven people forgive. When you look at the overall context, we see that church discipline is less like a criminal prosecution and more like a rescue mission. Okay? Church discipline is the gospel in action. Just as God does not leave us in our sin, but comes to us in rebuking grace, so we also extend that grace to others. So despite the pain and discomfort it may bring, we should not treat dealing with sin in the church as a dirty chore. Instead, we should count it as a solemn privilege to imitate the good shepherd who left the 99 on the hillside to go after the one straying sheep, which is each one of us. Okay? And one other thing to say as we get into this. Part of the reason why we want to talk about this, and part of the reason why obviously Jesus did, is that because as believers, your maturity in Christ and your sanctification, right, the process by which the Lord is making you more like Christ and removing sin from your life, is the will of God for your life. I'm going to read a passage that we read last week. 
1 Thessalonians 4, 1 through 8. Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us how you ought to walk and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. For you know what instructions we gave you through the Lord Jesus. For this is the will of God. In case you're wondering, what is the will of God for your life? You ready? Your sanctification. That you abstain from sexual immorality, that each one of you know how to control his own body in holiness and honor, not in the passion of lust like the Gentiles who do not know God, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. For God has not called us for impurity, but in holiness. Therefore, whoever disregards this, disregards not man, but God, who gives his Holy Spirit to you. And in 523 of First Thessalonians, he says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Okay? So why all of this on-ramp to what we're about to talk about? Because I want us to know and understand the process of you being sanctified, okay, of the Lord making you more like Christ and removing sin from your life is a grace of God in your life. And the process we're about to talk about is one of the ways in which he has ordained that this would happen, okay? So when we talk to each other about sin or when someone talks to us about sin, this is a grace of God in your life accomplishing sanctification. Does that make sense? It's a good thing. I didn't say it was an easy thing always, but it is a good thing, okay? So, all that being said, you're probably wondering, what are we going to talk about? Let's read 15 through 20 of Matthew 18. This is where we'll be the rest of the morning. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen... Take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. So we'll take this in a step-by-step process here. There's almost like a flow chart. Okay, so verse 15. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. All right, and there is some variance in the text. You might have a different translation than that. You might not have against you in yours, which is fine. There's some variance in the text on whether or not against you should appear here. But the point is the same because we see in lots of places in Scripture that whether a believer sins against you or just sins in general, our responsibility to them is the same, okay? So there's a significant overlap in whether or not you're dealing with the sin that was committed against you personally or that you just saw someone do and you're going to address it, all right? So we establish our situation. There's a brother who is in sin, okay? And in this context, the Greek word just means a believer. We're not talking about a a physical male relative, okay? And, And the word can mean brother or sister in the faith. So we're talking about another believer. A brother or sister in the faith is in sin, okay? And the general sense here is that the believer is going to approach the other believer privately and individually first, okay? There are other situations like we talked about last week in 1 Corinthians 5, or possibly in 1 Timothy 5, where it seems like the situation, given the nature of the sin, is different. It's more public, and that may require a more public addressing of the sin earlier on. But in this process, we're talking about one believer going to another believer about a sin. Okay? And this is the beginning, as I indicated, of a flowchart-like process. So we're going to call this step one in our mental flowchart. Okay? Depending on how the situation unfolds, it could go a couple different places from here. So we've got a believer in sin, and the very first thing to establish, and we have to get this right or we're going to miss everything else that happens, is whether or not the person has actually sinned. Okay? So something happens that you see, you are a witness to it, or you heard it or whatever, and you have to decide, okay, I saw that or heard that. Was that a sin? Because it could be that what the person did was annoying. could be that they violated your preferences. Okay? could be that what they did was something that you wouldn't do in your own conscience but was not a violation of their conscience. Okay? There's a category of that. It could be that you're being really sensitive and they did nothing wrong at all. Right? So to argue that something is sin... You have to have a clear teaching from Scripture and a proper interpretation of what they actually did or said, okay? You've got to be really careful about not assuming motive behind something that is not clear, okay? 
Because as we progress through this, you're going to see this can go to a, a this can result in discipline and consequences, and we do not want to engage in church discipline with somebody over your preferences being irked, right? We're not going to do that. We're not called to do that. In fact, we're called if someone does something that isn't categorically a sin, that we can clearly say it was, then what are you supposed to do with someone when they do violate your preferences or they do annoy you, which happens all the time, for the record, okay? Well, Romans 15 says you have to bear with them. Romans 12 says you have to live at peace with them as far as it depends on you to put up with them, okay? And you have to, according to Philippians 2, consider them more significant than yourself, all right? So if somebody does something that's not a sin, biblically, but it's just something you don't like, that's not to say you can't talk to them about it, but we're approaching them under different terms, and the burden is on you to be okay with it and to get along with them, okay? Unity is the goal. You do not get to engage in church discipline with somebody because you don't like whatever that they did, all right? So we have to operate that this process that we're talking about is for someone in sin. And we understand how that could be the case, right? Don could say something to me that I didn't really like, but it might not be a sin. But if I hear him shouting profanities at me in the parking lot, I could probably argue biblically that that was a sin, right? But he might say something to me in passing in the hall. I'm like, I don't know what he meant by that, and maybe I should clarify with him, but I'm not going to go to you and say, you're wrong, okay? Do you understand this? Like, we get this, okay? But it's important that we're clear as we move through this process. All right, so now let's say we have a clear sin, right? Somebody has done something that we can make a good biblical argument for it that it's wrong, and we're going to engage in this process with the attitude from the shepherd going after the sheep. We're going to engage in this process because we love this person, we care about this person's sanctification, not because we're out to get them, all right? So what are we going to do? Well, we're going to go to them, okay? We're going to go to the person in sin, and we're going to tell them, hey, I saw this thing that you did, and I think it was wrong, and here's why, okay? Now, we do need to go to them. That's why it says to go to them, because most of the time, a lot of times, you just cannot assume that someone is going to come to you and be like, you know, I want you to talk to me about the thing that I did wrong, all right? Rare is that case, okay? Unless their hearts are convicted and they're feeling humble. But a lot of times, sin is blinding and sin is deceitful, and people either don't know or just don't want to think about what they did, and so the burden is on you. If you see something, you, you need to go and you need to talk to them, okay? You cannot assume that they will come to you. And, and I would argue, just purely here from a pastoral wisdom perspective, okay, I'm not speaking directly from the text here for a second, um, we're, we're told to go to them, but we're not given explicit directions on how, okay? Is a text message going to someone? Is going in person to someone going to someone? Well, technically, both of them are kind of, right? I would argue, just from my experience with this whole situation thing, talking to someone face-to-face -face is your best bet. It leads to the least amount of miscommunication because you have nonverbals, right? You can read each other's body language, and you can have a real conversation, okay? But there may be a time, I've seen this also done very well, where an email or a very thoughtful, long text message, okay, might be appropriate. Might give you a chance to put your thoughts on paper, especially if conversation is challenging for you. You might be able to put some scripture into the email and you can send it to them gently, okay? But I would argue, if possible, just from a communication standpoint, try to talk to somebody face-to-face -face if you can, okay? But either way, we're going to go to them, we're going to address it, okay? And as you go to somebody and you talk to them about a sin that you have perceived in them, I would also encourage you that you should ask a lot of clarifying questions and you should go with a very loving and gentle attitude, okay? Make sure that you do understand what they said or what they meant by what they said because if you go in guns blazing and you go in swinging, very likely the person's going to get defensive, right? And you might, you might be wrong, okay? So it's helpful to go in, ask clarifying questions, have a, an attitude of humble gentleness, and talk through it with them. And this might not be one conversation, this could be several, okay? We'll talk more about the timeline of this, but it may take some time for you and the person to work through and talk about what happened, okay? And I would also say, when you go to the person, you ought to go to them with the word in hand, okay? Because the word is useful for teaching, for, quote, reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, okay? So go to them with the word, and the better you know the word, the better you will be at engaging in this process, all right? But if you're going to tell somebody that, that, you, that they sinned, you ought not to say, I think you sinned. You ought to say, you know, Matthew 23, 5 says so-and-so, and, -so, and I, I saw this happen. I, I, think, I think you need to repent of that, okay? We're not going to people with our opinions. And as Galatians 6, 1 says, you need to go to them in a spirit of gentleness, right? 
But I would also argue that being clear with somebody is not mutually exclusive from being gentle because we're trying to be helpful to a person. It's not helpful to somebody to go to them gently and very ambiguously. I th you said this thing that was kind of like maybe not ideal-ish, but could have been a little better. You know what I'm saying? That's not helpful, okay? Friends of ours are engaged in a situation of this right now somewhere else, and there have been, it's been very helpful for people in the process because there have been clear statements about things that were said so that the person can know what it is we're talking about. It's not this ambiguous like, well, what do you even mean by that? So if someone did something, be gentle with them, but, but, but do be clear and use clear biblical language to define what you're talking about, okay? And lastly, as you go to the person, thinking of Matthew 7 here for a minute, what does Jesus say about the person with the speck in their eye? Does he say, if you have a log in your own eye, don't take the speck out of their eye? He says, no. If someone has a speck in their eye, you should take it out, okay? But you ought to self-examine as well because maybe the thing you're about to go talk to somebody else about is something that's evident in your own life as well. So that's not to say don't talk to them about it. It is to say examine yourself and make sure that you're not being hypocritical so that you deal with something in your own heart, repent of that, and then by all means, go and talk to them about it, okay? So we want to have a humble, introspective attitude as we go talk to somebody about something we've seen in them because it's very possible we might need to repent of the same thing, okay? And the goal of all of this, by the way, is to quote, win your brother or gain your brother. The idea is for them to see things the way you see them, so you've identified it as a sin. You want them to also see it as a sin so that they can repent of it, okay, and be restored. If they sin against you, the two of you can reconcile. If they sin against somebody else, those two can reconcile, but the idea is restoration and repentance. We're going to keep hammering on that all the way through this, all right? So what happens? You go to them, you talk to them, and they say, you are right. Thankful Thankful you pointed that out to me. I'm really sorry. I'm sorry I sinned against you in that way. I repent of that. Please help me not do that again. And I'm, I'm glad you said something. Okay? Well, then we're done. Right? We're done. Now, there may be some additional recovery needed if the relationship has been damaged. Right? But we understand that if that happens and the person repents, you forgive them, you extend forgiveness, they've extended repentance, and our flow chart finishes. Right? This is the point of this process. We're done. Okay? As far as involvement of others go. All right? However... You cannot control their response, and sometimes they don't listen to you, okay? They say, no, I don't want to hear anything about that from you, okay? Well, then what? Then what do we do if you do not gain your brother because he does not listen to you? Well, verse 16. If he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses, okay? So this is our next step in the flowchart process. They haven't listened to you. They might have said, I agree that I did that, but I don't think it was wrong. Or I don't even agree that I did it. Or I did it and I just flat out don't care that you approached me about it. Any number of responses, okay? But they've clearly said, I don't want to hear from you. At that point, you bring a couple other witnesses with you. Now, why do we do that? Why would we do that? Well, this is an Old Testament principle brought into the New Testament. So let's call it a general biblical principle, okay? That every charge in this case, a charge of sin or wrongdoing, may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Deuteronomy 19, Deuteronomy 17, 2 Corinthians 13, 1 Timothy 5, right? We do not want a situation in which one person's word is pitted against another person's word, and we can't verify if something either happened or did not, okay? If we're going to establish a charge of wrongdoing and unrepentance, we need to make sure that it's not just a his word versus his word, okay? You said, I said, now we're just going to argue about it. Okay. And I think there's two ways that these other individuals coming into the situation can serve as a witness to establish the wrongdoing. Okay. Option one, the person being confronted does not admit to what they're being charged with. Okay. So let's say I go to Don. I'm sorry to pick on you, Don. You're just in the front. Okay. Last week it was Dwayne. Dwayne got handed over to Satan. Now I'm picking on you. Okay. So Don yells at me in the parking lot because maybe I, got, I cut him off or something by accident. He shouts a bunch of profanities at me or something. And I go to Don and say, Don, what, what you said was really, really harsh and unkind, and like if you would say you're sorry. He says, I will not. In fact, I don't even think I did that. Well, Eric was there, and Eric saw it happen, and, and so did Doug, okay? So all the people in the front row, don't sit in the front row, okay? You become sermon, you become sermon illustrations. So I say, Eric, and I say, you guys, I've approached Don about this thing that we all saw happen, and Don is really, like, just will not say I'm sorry. Can you guys come with me and just help me show him that he did this, and you guys can ask him to apologize as well, right? Because they saw it happen, okay? Does that make sense? They're a witness because they saw it happen. 
That's one option for why these people can be considered a witness in this situation. They're going to come with me in joining Don or in adjuring you to repent. Okay? Another way that they could serve as a witness, because we're not just bringing anybody into a situation just to have some people on our side. That's not what we're doing. Another way that they could serve as a witness, okay? Don says, yeah, I did that, and I'm not sorry about it, okay? Well, then I could bring in a couple people. I'm going to maybe grab Dale, okay? I'm going to grab Kevin. Say, guys, um, Don has openly admitted to doing this thing that's wrong, but he, he's not repenting about it. Can you guys join me in calling him to repentance, okay? In that case, they serve as a witness because now three of us have heard Don say, yeah, I did the thing, and it was wrong. I just don't want to apologize for it. So now they're witnesses because they have been a witness to a confession of the thing as sin. Does that make sense? So in either situation, three people saw it or three people heard Don say, I did do that and it was wrong and I'm just not sorry. Now we have a, quote, charge established. Does that make sense? But, and we can move forward, okay? But there may be a lot of situations where it is purely, I have something that I saw, nobody else saw it, and the person either doesn't acknowledge that it was wrong or has a disagreement about it, whether it was wrong, and I just, there's no other witnesses, okay? There's no other witnesses to a confession, and there's no other witnesses to the event. Well, we are not going to proceed in church discipline and potentially remove somebody from our fellowship because I have assessed that they did something wrong, but I can't verify it based on anybody else's testimony or their own admission. We're not going to do that. In that situation, where it's my word versus Don's word, okay, I am going to continue to pray for Don, I'm probably going to talk to him more about it later, but we're not going to involve other people at this point as witnesses because there's nothing to be witness to. Does that make sense? We have to understand as we progress in this, based on the severity of the situation as it grows, we have to be dealing with a verifiable, established charge. We're not getting rid of people and kicking them out of our church because I didn't like something he did, and I'm going to get people on my side to help him get him out of here. That's, that happens in churches, but that's not what Jesus is telling us to do. Okay? So, hopefully in that situation, I've gone to Don, I brought Eric and Doug, or I brought Dale and Kevin, and Don's been like, all right, okay, you're right. I'm, I'm sorry. I shouldn't have been so defensive and stubborn when you first brought this up to me. And Don apologizes, and we move on, okay? We move on. I forgive Don, and we're done. But suppose, in some situation, that the person, verse 17, refuses to listen to them. Then what? Okay, so now two or three people have implored this person to repent, and they refuse. Well then, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Okay, so our flow chart proceeds to the next step. So you tell it to the church. Well, that begs the very first question that begs is what church do you tell it to? Right? Okay, so I'm in a situation with somebody that's sinned against me. Lots of people have now implored them to repent. We've given them time to repent. They will not. So we tell it to the church. Any church? Do I go to Life Church on Sunday and say, hey, we got a sin issue over here, and I want you guys to do something about it? That makes no sense, right? The church that you're going to tell this to is the church, the local church, the local gathering that you and this other individual are assumed to be a part of. Okay? Do you see the assumption in the text? that you and this other individual are part of a church that this could be told to. Do you see that? That's why Jesus can say, tell it to the church, and not even have to explain what he means by that, because the New Testament assumes that you and the other believer in this situation are a part of a local gathering. Okay? That would be the church that you would tell this to. It wouldn't make sense any other way. All right? So there's an assembly of believers that you and this other person are part of, and that assembly would be the ones that you would tell about this. Well, let's talk about that. Because at this point, people are like, what are we talking about? All right? And the goal of this step, by the way, has not changed. The goal of telling it to the church is to win the person back to repentance and to restore them. Okay? And we know what repentance looks like. We're not talking about something nebulous. Okay? We can understand when somebody has repented. Repentance means acknowledging sin for what it is. Saying, I agree with the Lord that that was wrong, and I'm sorry for it, and as best as I'm able by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm going to work to get rid of that in my life. Okay? That's repentance. We can understand what that looks like and what that means. Okay? And if someone does repent, we're going to welcome them back joyfully into our midst. Okay? We're going, we're going to forgive them and we're going to welcome them. Okay? 
Obviously understanding that some sins, depending on what they are, take a period of time to heal and rebuild trust. We understand all that. But when a person repents, we welcome them back joyfully. Okay? Now, in a situation where we have gotten to the point in our flowchart where we have to potentially tell it to the church, okay, telling it to the church does not mean just merely sharing information about the situation. And why do I say that? Because right here, look at verse 17. If he refuses to listen to the church, well, how can he listen to the church if the church is not speaking to him? Right? So if we're in a situation where we have to tell the church about something, it does not mean that we're just going to share the information so everybody's aware of it. We're going to share the information so that everybody's aware of it, so that everybody can join in calling this person to repentance in a spirit of gentleness and love and with the goal of the restoration. That's how he could listen to them because they are speaking to him. So at that point, it wouldn't just be one or two or three people talking to the individual. It would be like a hundred saying, man, please, please repent for that. We want you restored. Okay? They're all speaking to him. And that's how he could say that he could either listen to or not listen to the church. Make sense? Okay. Now, practically speaking, everybody wants to know, there is not a set formula for how this would happen. Okay? Everybody's minds are like, how would you ever tell the church about Don's sin? Okay? There is no practical formula for given for this. All right? Probably, just me speaking about this, this probably would take place at a members meeting. Okay? However, I have seen this done. Brett will remember this very well as well on a Sunday morning service at a large church, okay? I remember this like it was yesterday. Got to church, normal service start, and then the pastor said, um, he goes, I have something I need to share with you this morning that's going to make me cry when I read it, so I'm going to read it to you and just hear me out. And he pulled out a prepared statement, and he read about a woman in the church who was engaged in persistent adulterous affair, and had been implored by her husband and numerous other people for a period of time to repent, and she refused. And at that point, it was made known to the church, and the church joined those other individuals, I knew the woman, in calling her to repentance, okay? I mean, I remember thinking at the time, like, what are we doing, right? And it was like, well, we're actually doing Matthew 18, and we're doing it well, gently, humbly, carefully, and ultimately, she was restored to the church. She, She actually repented, her husband, and she reconciled, they've got a wonderful marriage now, okay? Uh, it was, uh, and that's the point, right? That's the point. But it happened. It happened on a Sunday morning at church, okay? I'm not saying that would always happen this way here. As you can tell from this process, given that it's only four verses long and it's a serious subject, a great deal of wisdom and discernment is called for as we do this. Would we all agree with that? Okay? Would we all agree with that? And I would argue that if you're at this point in a situation where you're, you're working through a sin issue with another believer, you and some other individuals, and it's getting to the point where you're like, I think we may have to go to the church with this because there's no repentance there's a, a stubborn obstinance here. Uh, do you have to tell the elders first before you would go to the church? Well, black and white, the answer would probably be no, not necessarily. However, I think wisdom and good biblical logic would say that, yeah, you probably should, okay? Because the elders are the overseers or the shepherds of this church, and it's our job to help maintain order in the church. And before something was brought up um, out of the blue at, at like a members meeting or something, we would love to make sure that that process has been followed biblically and faithfully to that point and be a part of telling it to the church should that become necessary, okay? So please, involve your elders in this process if you feel like you're working through a sin situation with somebody and you've gotten to this point. Does that make sense? We are there for that, that kind of thing, okay? And what is the timeline for this? That's the other thing everybody wants to know. How fast should this process go from, chap- from verse 15 to verse 17, Okay. If Don sins on Sunday afternoon after church, by Sunday at 5 o'clock he hasn't apologized yet. By Monday, I've got these guys involved. By Monday night he hasn't apologized. Tuesday morning we call a meeting, you're out. Okay? (laughs) I don't think so. I really don't. Okay? I don't think so. Especially given the nature of that hypothetical situation. Okay? Right? There is no specific formula for this. Now, in some cases, like Titus 3, where someone is causing division, maliciously causing division, Paul says they get two warnings and they're done. Okay? doesn't give how many days that takes, but there are certain sins like the one in 1 Corinthians 5, a very grotesque, flagrant, prideful public sin that Paul's like, when I get there, he's gone. Should have been gone already, okay? Titus 3, someone's maliciously causing division. We have a, a certain sense of urgency to that. But I would say in the vast, vast majority of situations where you're talking with another believer about their sin, this is going to take a long time, okay? We want to take sin seriously, We don't want to just assume it's no big deal. It is a big deal, okay? 
But people need time to digest what is being said to them about themselves. People need time to pray about it, to read the word and see if they agree with you. People need time to have conversations with each other. This is not, we're not looking to just ramrod somebody out of here like a bunch of vigilantes, okay? This is a restorative process. And sometimes it's going to take a little time to work through this. In fact, I would say almost all the time, okay? Almost all the time, all right? So wisdom and discretion and discernment and a great deal of prayer are called for in this whole process. Do we agree? Okay. And also, by the way, as you're kind of noticing, there's not a specific kind of sin given by which this would happen, right? We see in 1 Corinthians 5 it was a public sexual sin. But there were other sexual sins happening in 1 Corinthians that they weren't all immediately booted for, right? You alluded to that last week, right? So it's not necessarily that we give, we're given a list of sins, and if you happen to hit that checklist, you're instantly gone, or you have to be church disciplined for that. As you can see, as this, as this progresses, it really becomes as much about the person's attitude as it does about what they actually did, okay? I'm witnessing this, and I mean firsthand right now, with some good friends of ours, because what, what should have been a very minor situation involving an offense one person against another has turned into a big deal because the person being approached absolutely refuses to apologize and will not apologize. And now it's a big deal, okay? But it was over a very minor thing. But the attitude of I refuse to admit guilt and say I'm sorry, that has become the issue, right? A absolute refusal to apologize and repent and admit that what they did was wrong. And, and as you progress through this, you can see that the attitude becomes as much an issue as what was actually done, okay? And as, as I said, this process takes time, and we want to bear with one another, okay? If someone is struggling with the sin, which hopefully all of us are struggling with a lot of sin all the time, we're struggling with it, we're fighting against it, and failing sometimes, there's a big difference between fighting against a sin and failing, but trying to work through it by the power of the Holy Spirit and giving yourself to something obstinately and with no intentions or desire to fight it or apologize for it, okay? Those are fundamentally different attitudes in the believer, okay? 1 Peter 4.8 says that love covers a multitude of sins. Sometimes we bear with somebody for a long time, okay, as we give them a chance to struggle and we will struggle with them in something, okay? We're not talking about an immediate, swift, boot them out because they did something one time, we happen to see them do it, and they're gone. That's not what we're saying, okay? Now, what happens if, as l- throughout this whole process, we get to the end of it, and the church has implored these people, please, please repent, please. And they're like, no, we're not going to do it, okay? Well, then what? What do you do if someone adamantly refuses to repent in the face of a unified call to repentance? Jesus says, you quote, consider them as a Gentile or tax collector. And to a Jewish audience, those words have a very specific meaning, okay? That would be like saying someone who's godless, unbelieving, or corrupt. Someone in the Jewish mind who's a Gentile or or a tax collector or someone who's not worthy of membership in the covenant community, okay? Gentiles are used synonymously with unbelievers and pagans in other places like 1 Corinthians 5, Ephesians 4, 1 Thessalonians 4, 1 Corinthians 10, okay? So if someone refuses to listen to the church despite repeated calls to repentance, Jesus says, treat them as someone who does not fit in this community, okay? To quote a commentator, these terms thus seem to stand for a person who has no place among the people of God, okay? So now, our consideration of the person, our mindset towards him has to shift, okay? And the you, by the way, interestingly, says that you need to treat him as a Gentile tax collector. That's actually a singular you, referring to the person that started this process. But given the nature of the collective event at that point, I would argue that the church is going to take this posture as a whole, okay? John MacArthur says the idea of treating him as a Gentile and a tax collector is to remove the individual as a detrimental influence from the fellowship of the church and then to regard him as an evangelistic prospect rather than a brother. And Paul's going to say next week that the church is not supposed to even associate or eat with someone like this. Whoa! What does that mean? Okay? And what do we mean like that? We're not supposed to associate with or treat someone like a believer who adamantly refuses to live like one. Okay? I say I'm a believer, but I refuse to live like a believer. Well, then I can't treat you as a believer. Okay? At minimum, I think this means that we can't include somebody in the Lord's Supper, eating with them in that way specifically, which is a meal for members of the covenant community. 
because this is a status that this person is repudiating with their behavior, okay? 2 Thessalonians 3 says we shouldn't treat somebody who's in this condition as an enemy, but they are certainly to be excluded from the normal life and fellowship of the church, okay? Something has shifted in our relationship with them at this point. Does that make sense? It's not exactly clear how this will exactly play out every time, but something fundamentally, because of their own behavior, has shifted their relationship with the rest of the body, okay? And I think that not associating with them or eating with them does not necessarily require that you can't be speaking to or cordial with them in another setting, like if you run into them at Walmart, but it certainly does mean that they cannot be treated normally as you would any other member of this church, okay? Given the current condition of their hearts and their actions surrounding that, okay? Some would argue, and I would generally agree, that at this point your posture toward them becomes more evangelistic. You're calling them to believe the gospel at all and repent of their sins and trust Christ as their Lord because with their behavior, they're not even doing that, okay? But even as we regard somebody as an, you know, we recognize that they're impenitent, they're stubborn, they're hard-hearted, they refuse to act like a Christian, we're not going to hate them. There's never any room for hatred of this individual, okay? Our disposition towards them, while our behavior towards them may change, our affections for them are only ever loving, gracious, gentle, kind, and desiring that they would be repenting and restored, okay? I want to read several quotes here, and the reason for that is twofold. One, these guys are really smart and they have good things to say, but also, I want us to understand that this process we're talking about, while not preached about or practiced, I would argue, in most modern evangelical Western churches. This is just kind of something that people don't really want to deal with, okay? This is not a new thing, and it's certainly not unique to FRC. I promise you that, okay? Christians for millennia have been walking through this process in their churches. Most of the time you don't see it happen, but this is not new or unique to FRC. Christians have been doing this for thousands of years, and if and we're just walking down a well-trodden path. We're talking about now because we're working through 1 Corinthians and it comes up, but I'm not preaching about it today because it's some new idea that we're like, hey, we want to implement this at our church, okay? We've actually, we already do this, all right? It's just very rare that you get to the point where we're up here telling somebody about everybody's sin. That doesn't usually happen, okay? But we're not preaching about this because it's new. We're preaching about it because it's what we came up against in 1 Corinthians, and this is, this is a standard practice of biblical, healthy churches for thousands of years, all right? So here's some quotes from other people talking about the same subject. Specifically, we're talking about verse 17, where we're treating him as a Gentile and a tax collector. The offender, faced by the disapproval of the whole local disciple community, ought surely to recognize that this was not just a personal grievance on the part of the initiator. Anyone who is not willing to accept such united testimony may then properly, properly be regarded as no longer a fit member of the community. The other disciples are being instructed to suspend normal fellowship with the offender. John Piper. And the last step is, if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. And what that means is that the church then takes some kind of step to cut that person off, like from the communion table and from normal ongoing relationships that you would ordinarily have with a believer and doing things together as those who share the same commitment to Jesus. You cut them off. And that means not that you have damned them, but that you have put them in a position where you are longing and praying for their repentance. I have seen it happen, and it is intended to happen in the Bible, that this kind of excommunication is doubly redemptive. It is redemptive for the church so that the truth of the gospel and its power will not be lost by pretending people are believers when they don't bear any fruit. And it is redemptive for the person who is being excommunicated because we see in 1 Corinthians 5 that the aim of this ostracism is redemptive. That is, we want them to be brought to repentance and restored to the church. And to that end, we do talk to them. We do reach out like we would to any unbeliever in love, and we would happily lay down our lives that they would repent. There is nothing ugly or hostile in this. This is all designed to do everything the church can do to keep itself true and authentic and holy and pure and to love other people back to the Savior. Last quote. Christ has appointed this method for the vindicating of the church's honor, the preserving of its purity, and the conviction and reformation of those that are scandalous. Now, common objection at this point. I feel this in my own heart. This does not seem like it will work. Since when does publicly announcing someone's sin and then somewhat shaming them we used that word a lot last week, right? 
putting shame on this person. Publicly talking about their sin and then shaming them or ignoring them, since when does that make anybody want to apologize? Right? I mean, I feel that, okay? I'm sure you're feeling that right now. I wouldn't apologize if you did that to me. Okay, well, here's my first word of encouragement on that. As much as sometimes we feel that way, let's trust that Jesus knew what he was talking about when he told us to do this. Okay? Let's just trust that he knew what he was talking about when he told us to do this, despite sometimes how we feel about it. Okay? That's my first thing. Second thing, it does work. I've seen it work. Okay? It does work. And also, we've got to remember, when we talk about loving people, don't forget that an individual live in, living in persistent, Christ-dishonoring sin, okay, in the face of gentle, loving correction from other believers, that individual, by their behavior, may be indicating that they are not a believer at all. They don't understand the gospel and the lordship of Christ. Maybe. And how spiritually dangerous for that person, if they aren't a believer, to be given weekly validation by a church that someone living like that is fine and a, probably a believer. That's not true. That's a false affirmation, okay? We ought not to treat people who refuse to live like a Christian as if they are a Christian because that means that every week when they come to church that we ignore the fact that they refuse to live like a believer and tell them it's fine, someday they'll stand before Jesus and they won't know him. But they'll think they're fine because they went to a church and didn't do anything about their sin, okay? That's not loving to an individual. Any more than it's not loving to your child to let them do whatever they want and turn into a little rotten monster because you don't want to say anything to them about it, okay? It's not loving. We do not want to give people a false sense of assurance that they are a believer because we won't say anything about the fact that they refuse to live like one, okay? It's not good for this church, and it's certainly not good for that individual because at that point we've told them that they're fine with the Lord when they are not fine with the Lord, okay? Now, how often does this actually happen, okay? realistically. Most of the time, when a believer is approached by another believer, which I have been approached many times by lots of people about my sin, and I've approached other people about their sin, the vast majority of the time, someone who comes to me and says, I did something wrong, I repent and I apologize, and we're done. Okay? I go to you, I say you did something, you're like, you know what, you're right, thanks for bringing that up, appreciate that, I'm going to work on that. That's 99.9% .9 of the time. Okay? We get that, experientially, we understand that. Most of the time, if it goes to the next step, and other people get involved, in my experience with this, most of the time, when someone gets approached by more than one person from a church about an issue in their life, they leave the church. They quit, okay? They bail out. They don't want to deal with it. They don't want people telling them about stuff in their life, so they're gone, okay? And in that case, that person might still, in some way, have to be made known to the church so we can do some formal sense of disfellowshipping them, but that's very hard to do with somebody when they just skip out, okay? But that seems to be the case. I don't like that this church is getting up in my marriage. I don't like this church is telling me what to do with my tax refund. I can cheat all I want. Who cares if I cheat? It's none of your business if I cheat on my taxes, right? Well, kind of is. And if you don't want to be talked to about it, then a lot of times people just, they're gone. But for those of you who are members here, remember that membership covenant? What did the membership covenant say? Membership covenant says we won't do that, okay? The membership covenant says when I'm approached by sin, about my sin, or I'm approaching you, it's not fun, but I've agreed that you can hold me accountable and I can hold you accountable. So when you approach me about my sin and it's done biblically and correctly, in the spirit of love, I'm not going to just quit, okay? I'm not going to do that. And I don't want you to do that either, okay? And I'm not saying we're always going to do this perfectly with each other. We've got to extend each other a lot of grace in the process, but we have agreed as a covenant community to hold each other accountable and let each other say things about our lives and talk to us about our problems, okay? And we need that from each other. It's part of the way we're sanctified, all right? Now, <clears throat> one other question I think is lingering. What authority, this is a big deal for a church to make a pronouncement about another person's status and call them a Gentile and a tax collector. That's a big deal for a church to say that about somebody. What authority does a church have to do that, right? Can a church say that about somebody in the church? That sounds very judgy. Sounds very judgy for you to label me as a Gentile or tax collector, as someone who's, quote, not fit to be a part of this community. Very judgy. Well, maybe. Maybe it is. But why is it okay to do that? If it's done right, here's the way we do it. Verses 18 through 20. Truly I say to you, 
Whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. Okay. What is all this about binding and loosing? We're tying people up? Sounds weird, doesn't it? Okay. Well, we've got to understand chapter 18 by looking at the page before it. So look six inches to the left, chapter 16. Okay. In chapter 16, Jesus told Peter that he has the keys to the kingdom of heaven and that whatever he binds and looses on earth is bound and loosed in heaven. All right? So he's giving this, he gave a word of authority, which I'll argue for here in a moment, to Peter in chapter 16. And now he's giving the same word of authority to the church, the gathered church, in chapter 18. Okay? Because now in verses 18, 19, and 20, the yous are plural. It's a plural you. Okay? So what is going on here with this tying and loosing? I'm going to argue here briefly that these are words of authority. So a couple of quotes to that effect. The metaphor of tying up and untying speaks of administrative authority. The terms are used in rabbinic literature for declaring what is and is not permitted. When the same commission is given to the whole disciple group in chapter 18, it will be specifically in the context of dealing with sin in their community. Bind and loose refer to the judicial authority of gathered Christians to decide cases on the basis of God's law. All right? I'm going to read one more, two more quotes here from Nine Marks. And by the way, just a quick plug. We have some little books out in the lobby. Eric mentioned this last week. For more reading on the subject of church membership and church discipline and all of that, there's some really good works by Nine Marks on the whole subject. So I would refer you to the little booklets in the lobby. I'm going to quote from these guys because they've done a tremendous amount of work in this area. And if you want to learn more about this metaphor of binding and loosing, I would, I would encourage you to read more about that. But for now, here's a quote from Nine Marks. By giving the keys of the kingdom first to Peter and the apostles and then to gather churches, Jesus gave churches a similar authority to the U.S. Embassy in Brussels. The authority to make provisional judgments concerning what is a right confession of the gospel, Matthew 16, and who is a citizen of the kingdom of heaven, Matthew 18. This is what Jesus meant when he said churches possess the authority to bind and loose on earth what is bound and loosed in heaven. He did not mean that they could make people Christians or make the gospel what it is any more than an embassy could make me an American or make American laws. Rather, Jesus means that the churches can make official pronouncements or judgments concerning the what and the who of the gospel on behalf of heaven. What is a right confession and who is a true confessor? Jesus gave the church this authority to bind and loose people to itself in order to that the church would representatively declare to the world who does and does not belong to him, okay? Christ has given his assembled church the authority to make a judgment or a decision about what is a right profession of the gospel, chapter 16, and a right, let's call it, action of the gospel or attitude of the gospel in verse 18. If someone is not acting like a believer, Christ has given the church the authority to make that judgment or pronouncement, okay? That's the binding and loosing language. All right. And in verse 19 and 20, often quoted, and I would argue often misunderstood verses, we talk a little bit more about this authority. Okay? The two or three gathered in verse 19 right, are the two or three witnesses from verse 16. We have not started a new thought here. Okay? We're not starting a new thought. So there's two or three witnesses in 16, and now Jesus is saying of those two or three witnesses, okay, that they are gathered in the name of Jesus and they're rendering a joint judgment about another believer based on the keys of the kingdom given in 16 and here referenced again. So the two or three here are here making some sort of a pronouncement or judgment about the individual in sin. And when that happens, Jesus promises to be with his disciples as they do that. Okay? He's given them the authority to do it and he promises that his presence will be with them when they do. This is a very similar sounding language to 1 Corinthians 5 that we read last week where Paul says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus, dot, 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 dot. Okay? So here we have an assembly of people, in this case two or three, same two or three witnesses, gathered together making a pronouncement of judgment about another believer in their sin, and Christ has promised them the authority to do it and his presence with them when they do it. Okay? And verse 19 is a reiteration of verse 18, because he says, again I say to you, so whatever's happening with the prayer, the asking in verse 19, is connected to the binding and the loosing 
in verse 18. That's why he says, again, I say to you. So the prayer in verse 19, the asking of God in heaven, is connected in some way of asking God to confirm or give them wisdom for or something, what those who are doing in verse 18 have done, which is exercising church discipline, okay? And the reason that this binding and loosing, this pronouncement or judgment about a person's condition is considered effective is because Jesus has promised the authority and the presence to do it, okay? His name gives an authority to what they do on earth and an acceptableness in heaven, all right? So like I say, these verses are often quoted in a different context, but in this context, the two or three gathered in Jesus' name are the two or three witnesses. They're making some sort of a judgment about a believer in sin. This is all part of the church discipline process. And they're asking something of God in heaven. He's promising to heed that prayer because Jesus has given them the authority to do this and his presence is with them. Does that make sense? Okay. So I'll summarize verses 19 and 20. Specifically in this context, the two or three gathered in the name of Jesus and in agreement, not about just anything in general, agreement about the sin or repentance of the other can be assured that Christ is with them and that their prayers are heard and answered as they endeavor to properly handle the confrontation of sin and pursue reconciliation and repentance in a wayward brother or sister. Does that make sense? Okay. Now, obviously based on the whole witness of Scripture, there may well be an appropriate secondary application to the idea that Christ is present with two or three believers, right? But in this context, the prayer being prayed, the agreement being agreed on, the two or three gathered together are in the context of church discipline, making judgments about another believer in sin and working through that with them and calling them to repentance, okay? All right. In closing, three additional passages to hopefully solidify and argue the point that the goal of this is reconciliation and restoration. This is not an isolated teaching and that this is something that the apostles heard Jesus teach and then applied in their churches that they started and taught us how to do it as well, okay? I'm gonna, so Galatians, Jude, and James all speak to this subject as well. I'm going to read these three passages and then we'll close. Galatians 6, 1 and 2. Brothers, if anyone is caught in any transgression, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Keep watch on yourself, lest you too be tempted. Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Jude 22 and 23. Have mercy on those who doubt. Save others by snatching them out of the fire. To others show mercy with fear, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. And James 5, 19 through 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So in summary, all Christians, okay, all Christians have a responsibility to humbly address sin in one another's lives, eager to forgive, and with reconciliation, repentance, and purity of the church as their goal. Matthew 18 lays out a step-by-step process by which believers do this, individually first and then corporately if necessary. Christ has given his church the authority to do this and has promised his presence will be with them and that the Father will heed their prayers as they faithfully walk through this process. Okay? Let's pray.